0: Welcome to Turning Points, a geopolitical what-if podcast. Hi, welcome to Turning Points, the what-if podcast where we explore potential futures that might come about. Uh, In this first episode, we're going to be talking about what if China and Taiwan went to war. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams, and for this first episode, I'm joined by a crack team of geopolitical specialists, Philip Orchard, Omar Lamrani, Simtac, and Adriano Bassoni. And so without further ado, on to the first episode. why don't we begin just by setting the scene a little bit about what the situation is like at the moment. So um, for people who don't, who aren't based in, you know, the Asia Pacific area or or, or around there, then they may not know the geography that well and and where Taiwan fits in and and, and things like that. So can we just start maybe just by like mapping the, mapping the scene in terms of um, what China and Taiwan look like on the, on the map?
1: Sure. So Taiwan, uh, I recommend it, everyone pulling up a map. But it's um, it, Taiwan is is mainly a big island that used to be known as Formosa. It's about a or about roughly a hundred miles from Fujian Province in in the mainland China, separated by what's known as the Taiwan Strait. Uh, it's it's a big island. It's a mountainous island. It's a great. It's an easy, relatively easy place to defend. Uh, but it's still very, very, very
0: close to mainland China. Okay, and um, it fits into kind of what's called the first string of islands. How does how does that play in?
1: Yeah, it's the the first island chain. It runs stri- basically from Japan, or even uh, the the Kurils and uh, north of Japan in in East, far eastern Russia, all the way down to basically you could uh, include southern Indonesia or some of the the southern uh, South Pacific islands. Uh, it forms a chain of islands uh, that, if, that if for a country that needs to export a lot of stuff or import a lot of stuff by sea, means that they have to run ships uh, through several a number of uh, of choke points. Some bigger than others. Uh, some of them uh, very small, but, such as the Strait of Malacca or uh, the Sunda Straits in the south, the Bashi Channel between uh, Taiwan and the Philippines. Uh, that a a naval power could uh, theoretically and probably realistically uh, blockade uh, bringing the exporting or importing power, uh, bringing its economy to its knees.
0: So it's a subtly different problem to what, um, for example, the Soviet Union had um, and Russia before that. Uh, And after that, in terms of always having that desiring access to a warm water port, um, whereas China's got access to warm water ports, um, but it's constrained potentially by its ability to kind of project beyond that by having kind of these choke points all around it. And if it managed to get hold of Taiwan, then um, that would that would kind of break that first chain and give much more open access to the Pacific and then and then and then you're off. So, um, let's talk about, um, so how did, how would Taiwan come to be about? You said it was called Formosa before. How did, where, what's, what's the history of Taiwan?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think when looking at Taiwan, China, cross-strait relations, you have to understand that the Chinese civil war never really ended. And to be sure, Mao's communists, you know, whipped Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists in the actual fighting, literally drove them into the sea and into the mountains of Northern Burma took full control of the mainland, um, it forced the Kuomintang to flee across the Taiwan Strait to to Formosa. And once there, you know, they turned Taiwan into, if we're, if we're being realistic, what's basically an independent nation state. But officially, there still is only one China. Uh, both governments uh, officially believe that. They just not so politely disagree on who actually should be charged with that in charge of that one China.
0: I find that really interesting because um, you know when uh, Chiang Kai Shek had just fought a, whatever a, like 20, 30, 20 year civil war with the with the communists and had been driven into Taiwan, but and that was kind of the, the 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 bastion. But but it's kind of they view themselves as the real China, and one day they'll kind of return like King Arthur and and kind of rule the, rule the country. Was that a realistic thing, or do you reckon that was just for talk?
1: Yeah. So for since nineteen forty nine, since the split, one or both of the two sides have been actively plotting to reunite the two by force if necessary. In the first couple decades after the split, Mao's China was much, much too weak, much too bogged down with internal chaos to even to think seriously about trying to mount a difficult, amphibious invasion of Taiwan. But if and in the first couple decades, if there was a risk of someone marauding back across the Strait and restarting the war. It was probably Chiang Kai-shek who just, you know, he always had a really bad case of island fever, Um, but he was held back by the United States uh, despite the best efforts of General Douglas MacArthur. And um, and over time, Taiwan kind of went on to become, to flourish as a a pretty secure, wealthy democratic state that kind of lost interest in reunification, but still tended to play along with the game.
0: It's it's really yeah, as you say, it's it's well, it's very interesting from where we are now to imagine the idea of Taiwan being able to win against China. Just considering the, the different sizes in, in everyone's minds, but obviously China has changed a lot since then. So um, Mao always wanted to um, to retake Taiwan, um, but never kind of never got round to it, and it was always a very difficult one to to, to bite off. Um, and then China has just grown and grown and grown, and it's always been front of mind for China this this desire, hasn't it, to to, to retake?
1: Yeah, uh, because while well, Ta- Taiwan is basically fine with this weird arrangement, uh, even if it has to endure the headaches of you know not having a seat at the UN or not all the complications that come with not being able to have formal diplomatic relations with most countries, even its friends or the humiliations of having to march out at the Olympics under the banner of Chinese Taipei or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's basically fine. It, doesn't, it's, it can live with the status quo. Uh, China, on the hand, is not fine with this arrangement. It will never be fine with this arrangement. Um, and that's because politically, for the Communist Party of China, the unfinished war is a gaping wound in its narrative of national rejuvenation uh, that the party and only the party is capable of breaking china 's historical cycles of fragmentation, and a- as we noted it's um it 's a it 's a big strategic problem. Taiwan is basically a massive unsinkable aircraft carrier just a hundred miles from fujian, and a- as we noted, one that straddles china 's most vital sea lanes, and one that's just happens to be cozy with the world 's dominant naval power the u s <laughs>
0: Okay, so let's let's talk about the U.S. Where does where does the U.S. fit in, and perhaps kind of looking looking back as well as to how that's developed.
1: So early on, uh, the U.S. was uh, officially recognized the Republic of China, uh, in other words, Taiwan, and in Chiang Kai Shek's government as the, as the true one China. Uh, after Nixon and uh, at the beginning of the Carter administration, they formally switched sides once uh, and once U.S. China relations uh, formalized. But they paired that, and naturally that made you know, Taiwan quite a bit nervous, and it also upset some other allies in the region like Japan. Uh, but they paired that with all these somewhat vague but, but pretty substantial promises uh, and, um, and actually uh, laws in, you know, coming from the U.S. Congress requiring, requiring the U.S. to at minimum provide uh, Taiwan with what it needs to defend itself. And there's always been this, um, and you know, without getting too much into the the legal stuff, but you know, they're always trying to clarify and and get to the point where where China can't be sure that if it tried to invade Taiwan, that the U.S. would would uh, they can't be sure that the U.S. wouldn't intervene. And so they, the U.S. like as with with all of its allies, it it tries not to be too bound into, to any particular course of action. It likes to leave things a little bit vague. That way, it doesn't have to fight a war not of its own choosing.
0: It's a funny, I just think it's a funny relationship that the US has with Taiwan, because as you say, it's kind of, it's there as Taiwan's like, you know, number one saviour and number one protector. But at the same time, here we are, well, actually, let's, uh, in 2016, we had the situation where a new president was called by the Taiwanese president, um, and didn't know that he shouldn't take that call. um, Because um, he just wasn't, you know, he hadn't been briefed or whatever. But it's, Crazy to me that um, the U.S. is there as this as this kind of over overseeing protector, but also hasn't officially recognized Taiwan as a country, and so as a result, the presidents can't talk. It's just this weird dichotomy for me.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of pretending, and, and I think Trump did uh, pretty clearly did know he was it, it was a, that was a conscious decision on, on his team's part to to kind of make, make the point that look, this is getting a little bit silly. Uh, we are very close with Taiwan. Uh, we don't have an official embassy there, but we have a, a de facto embassy we have a de facto ambassador uh we have we do trade we do all these things um yeah there's all it's an awkward there's you know in the in the diplomatic realm it, there's lots of yeah pretending and and bending over backwards to uh to preserve the you know the, the official status yeah the charade um but uh, but I don't think either side's under any real illusions and um what what started beginning in 2016, uh, that was a way of sort of you know puncturing that illusion a little bit and to just show that hey uh, you know we are serious and let's not pretend too much because um, if if your pressure campaign if China's pressure campaign on Taiwan gets a little bit too intense uh, there might be consequences.
0: Okay, and so as you say, so for the last four years the US has been trying to you know challenge rock the boat, challenge the charade a bit, and challenge this status um, in in some ways. Um, so let's let's kind of take to a move towards a scenario at which um, China might uh, go to war with Taiwan. What what do we think might be a, a likely way that that comes about? For
1: Taiwan to declare independence, it would it would have to be under immense pressure uh, from from things going on in uh, from the Chinese side. It would have to see an opportunity, uh, something about the chaos, something or something that suggests to it that, that, that China would be bluffing about a, um, about attacking and and the, in the, and the politics would really have to shift in extreme direction toward pro independence. It's not, you know, so you could visualize some scenario where all of a sudden one of these smaller pro independence parties uh, starts doing, that's much more explicitly advocating for independence starts, uh, so, you know, all of a sudden there's massive crowds are showing up at the rallies and, and the political political incentives uh, start to realign in a way that um, that pushes things in this direction, uh, and it, you know someone's able to make the case that to the voters that look if we're independent, we more countries will be willing to sell us you know guns, more countries will be willing to make trade deals with us to do joint exercises and so forth. Uh, if we declare independence, it'll make make it easier for the U.S. to maybe establish a small military base here and so forth. Yeah, and so it be, it'd be, I think it'd have to be populism plus, you know, some some real, you know, hard brass tack strategic stuff. And you know, if if they can if they can make successfully make that case uh and let's say they get that gets them elected in, in an election and um they're getting some signals from the US that they believe that they would have backing. They look at they look across the strait and see China some internal crisis unfolding in China and say, "You know what? They can't they can't deal with this. The cost of an invasion would be of attempting to invade us or uh, would be would be immense um, and they see a rare window of opportunity to open up and say you know look we now's the time we, let's put this we we'll stop pretending let's let's stop doing it. let's give up this charade and then uh, one morning we all wake up and uh, there's a tweet from the new Taiwanese president and uh, saying hey yeah uh, we're independent and puts the ball back into Beijing's court.
0: Beijing's court. Okay. Enter, enter Omar, stage right. Beijing's court. So Taiwan has just declared independence. China is furious. What are China's options? What's China going to do about it?
2: Okay. So obviously, you know, we have a situation where the Taiwanese have declared independence. That is a, a grave threat to the legitimacy of the party. That is a grave threat to Chinese strategic objectives. So Chinese action in this scenario is guaranteed. So what are the options available to Beijing? Uh, You essentially have sort of a ladder of escalating uh, options in intensity and commitment. And that escalation is also matched by associated risk. So at the very bottom rung, we have something that is perhaps less than direct kinetic action or or military uh, strikes something like a blockade of Taiwan uh, with the idea of pressuring the Taiwanese government to essentially back down and revoke their declaration. Um, and, and so that that's at the very bottom. And then you move up to actual military options, uh, conflicts. Um, you have, then you have per, uh, perhaps uh, an invasion of the outlying islands as a warning of what could come next, um, going to the, going to further up to, to direct Strikes and bombing campaign of the Taiwanese island of, of Formosa or of uh, of Taiwan essentially to uh, with the same objective of of forcing them to back down to revert to the status quo um, and to accede to uh, to to remaining with the one China policy understanding and finally all the way up to um, a direct invasion with the with the with the objective of essentially putting an end to this to this uh, to this thorn on China's side and and taking over uh the island and and planting firmly the chinese flag on the island
0: so the first scenario is kind of the softest and it's a blockade it's just kind of turning the screw and trying to you know cause pain for the economic pain for the taiwanese in order to try and you know get them on board basically get them back into line and get them to perhaps rescind their declaration um the Second one, uh, and you brought into something you brought you mentioned something which we haven 't touched on yet, which is that Taiwan not just a big um, uh, mountainous island off the off the coast of china it's also got lots of small islands, some of which are very close to the Chinese mainland, like literally just done, tucked under the nose of um, and they 're all heavily fortified as well, but they 're in place, so China can um, launch. Um, so option two is launching um, missile attacks perhaps of these islands and also of the, of, of the mainland uh, what would uh, and then option three is, is a full invasion with all the pain and all the costs involved um, so the first and second would be kind of discouragement and the third one would be actual trying to take over that would be the difference would you say if-
2: yeah the first one is, is discouragement or, or rather a, a punitive response to get them to back down um, discouragements would be something, you know, the, 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 we're saying here that the Taiwanese have already decided to declare independence or have, de- or have declared independence. So it's, it's more to revoke an action or to cause the Taiwanese to back down from an action. In, in, Taiwan, in that circumstance, the Chinese would be very much looking forward to minimize the conflict and minimize the, the risks associated with the conflict, minimize the damage associated with the conflict, hoping that Taiwan will see reason, if you will. The third one is going for broke. It's let's put an end to this problem. Let's invade and take over the island.
0: Okay, cool. And so if you were China, which of these three do you think you'd choose?
2: So uh, taking everything together, including the, uh, the capabilities of the Chinese military as it stands, the Taiwanese defenses, and uh, the third key factor, which is uh, potential external involvement, uh, the most likely option, I would say, is the second one, the air and missile campaign. So what's, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Obviously, the first one, the embargo, the reality is it won't last. And the Chinese know it, the Taiwanese know it, everyone knows it. You can declare that embargo, but you know that the Taiwanese are going to challenge it. The The potential for that to escalate to the second rung or, or to escalate further into outright military conflict is almost guaranteed. So in that sense, that's not unlikely to last. So really, it comes down to, are we talking about... Um, a limited, demonstrated conflict, or where you punish Taiwan, Taiwan to back down, or going for, going for the full invasion. Now, the full invasion, the Chinese right now really don't have the amphibious capability. The risk is too high. It's is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Can they land troops? Yes, very likely they can. But sustaining them, the the, the sheer amount of casualties, um, and if you add in the risk of involvement of outside powers like the United States and, and Japan, it just is way too risky. So, really, the scenario we're looking at is again points towards the second
0: one. And so, um, perhaps, so it sounds like we're going to go for the second scenario, which is the missile attacks, which leaves the leaves the options open to, to escalate if needed. Um, what do they look like? What are they attacking? What are they What are they trying to do with these missile attacks?
2: Yeah. So the the, the objective here, uh, the key objective, is to coerce the Taiwanese. Government to back down, like we mentioned. But there's an ult- there's also the objective, the side objective, of prepping the ground for a potential escalation if need be. So um, you're going after symbolic targets, but also practical targets. Practical targets meaning you're you're trying to erode Taiwanese defenses, Taiwanese capabilities to allow for, for easier Chinese military action down the line if needed. So what are you targeting? You're using your air force. You're using your your uh, your your missile batteries, your cruise missiles, ballistic missiles to hit at naval bases, uh, air bases. You're hitting government targets, command and control, radar networks. You're even going after leadership targets uh, to to really convince them that this is a dire threat and they need to back down. Um, you're going after economic targets. You, it's really the whole gamut of uh, the whole list, right? So you, and you're going after air defenses, the coastal missile batteries that could sink your ships if you do decide to escalate to a full invasion. We're talking about a full-blown uh, missile and bombing campaign, um, significantly of, of high, high intensity, uh, sort of going, uh, going to uh, recent examples that, that might give sort of an example of this would be how the U.S. and coalition in the Gulf War really hammered the Iraqi army and Iraqi targets in anticipation of, of the actual land incursion.
0: It seems to me the, um, the personnel, the government uh, attacks, you know, they're trying to, trying to take out the heads of state um it's really interesting and really important in that a because it probably needs to happen first unless you you rely, you get really good intelligence afterwards because the minute there's some kind of missile attacks, then the then the taiwanese heads of state are disappearing under deep deep bunkers and then they're going to be impossible to reach so that seems like a like a really impossible uh, important first step um, but then are there any others? Uh, do you agree? And are there any others which, any other targets which do you think will be most effective, and perhaps in terms of shock and awe, or, or kind of catching the Taiwanese by surprise, or something like that, which you really want to prioritize?
2: Yeah. So the initial wave of strikes, uh, yeah, very very likely any leadership targets that they do go for will probably be in the initial you know list of strikes, and and perhaps perhaps when we talk about leadership targets, we're more talking about um, uh, military commanders. As well as uh, leaders that they view as problematic and, and perhaps won't back down, because ultimately you do want to leave someone in power that could decide to back down. And if so, if there is someone that they think maybe more amenable to, to to making the decision to back down, they won't be targeted. But but that first list of targets that they go after will be quite extensive because you want when you do want when China does strike, they want to strike in overwhelming force. To, to sort of both overwhelm the Taiwanese defenses and, and to maximize the uh, the use of tactical surprise. So you won't have strategic surprise here because obviously if Taiwan declares independence, everyone's going to be on very, very high alert towards Chinese action. So this is not a strike out of the blue type thing, but you still want that tactical surprise. You still want to, when you do go to war, to have that, that you know element of surprise there at, at the lower levels. So you're talking about a massive strike that that obviously at the top of the list, you have command command control, uh, early warning radars, things that, that could really help the, uh, the the Taiwanese mobilize their defenses, try to paralyze them and 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 that would uh, make it easier for you to to strike down down the list uh, as
0: you go. China is currently pounding Taiwan with with missile strikes and um, has tried to might have taken out the leadership or might not and is and is hitting um, important military targets. What's Taiwan doing? They're under attack. They've declared independence. Um, but what, what are they doing? How do they respond?
2: Yeah, so two key issues to cover in this is both the Taiwanese preparations before the conflict and Taiwanese actions during the conflict and what they might do. So obviously the Taiwanese have been readying for, for such a scenario for a long time. They, they uh, Especially as the Chinese military has grown stronger and stronger over the last two decades. So um, the Taiwanese, for instance, their air bases, a lot of them have tunnels where where the aircraft can can be stationed and and and, and uh, you know uh, insulated a little bit against strikes. The they have a lot of bunkers. Uh, they they have leveraged their mountainous terrain extensively to provide that added cover. So so that's the hard element. Soft elements is uh, things like camouflage, uh, being able to disperse your forces to to maximize the number of potential um, points that the time, that the Chinese had to worry about or strike. Um, you're talking about uh things like using your air defenses and coastal missile batteries to to move them around to forests and, and disperse them like that to to be able to still stay relevant. Um, they won't be able to cover everything a lot of things a lot of uh, their, their their assets are going to be destroyed and damaged but significant um, forces will still survive and, and 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 survive for a while so so the the possibility for the chinese to to eliminate Taiwan's capabilities defensive capabilities. In, in a matter of days is, is really not there. You need a sustained campaign. So in terms of Taiwan, uh, I discussed a little bit about the preparations for conflict, but what do they do and what are they doing? So it really comes down to uh, defend the island and uh, without going too much into the, their doctrine or, or their defensive plans, uh, that's, that includes everything from China all the way to Taiwan and defending the island proper. So that includes striking at Chinese bases, um, and destroying the missiles that are coming at them from from Chinese Chinese bases and sh- attacking ports attacking air bases really disrupting the, the Chinese ability to launch that that attacks and and escalate to invasion defending the straits using your 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 missile boats your your submersibles there are few submarines that they have the coastal missile batteries defending the beaches which are heavily fortified mined uh, they can be mined very quickly they they are, they have a lot of plans to rapidly bring in forces to defend those beaches. All the way to the urban and mountainous fighting, and even guerrilla fighting, if need be. So that's to defend the island, inflicts casualties, and above all, buy time. You want to buy time to both convince the Chinese to back down through sheer casualties, but also to bring in needed aid. So if we're talking about a world where only China and Taiwan exist, even if Taiwan is an island... You can't have a war of attrition. You will lose. Taiwan, China is just too big. So, uh, you know, Taiwan just cannot sustain casualties indefinitely at the rates that the Chinese can. So eventually they will lose. So it's, the name of the game is Defend Yourself Like a Porcupine Until the Lion, your friend, comes and helps you, which is the United States and potentially other allies. So so that's, that's a Taiwanese game.
0: Okay, great. It seems the Taiwanese um, have questions to ask because you're talking about, for example, striking... Chinese targets and, and, um, trying to kind of interfere and get in the way of the, of the, you know, impede the strike as much as possible. Um, and so to do that, part of that will be, um, presumably using Taiwanese chips and part of it might be using Taiwanese, um, fighters and, and bombers, which you've, um, talked about they have in bunkers and, and, you know, in, in mountains as well, in runways and mountains in some cases. What do you think they do? Do they do, do? they have to hide their fleet somewhere? Do they have to uh, base their? Would they prefer to base their fighters out of somewhere which is a little bit further away? I mean, do they? Is it a case of Ty- China will definitely get immediate kind of air superiority, so the Taiwanese will be really careful about getting a, a plane off the ground? What uh, can we say? Uh, can we say that with any with any security?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's of course it's a lot of this depends on how the initial days of conflict go, but in, at least on the initial days, the Taiwanese I don't expect the Taiwanese forces to flee. Um, I expect the, the, their their air force is there to protect the island. It's otherwise, what's the point of having it at all? So um, the even if you are completely outmatched or in terms of you know numbers or whatnot, just the mere fact that you have fighters available to go up and and pose that threat towards Chinese bombers. Uh, means that the Chinese uh, effectiveness is reduced because they have to assign escorts uh, their their aircraft have to carry air-to-air missiles instead of bombs uh, you know instead of carrying the whole the whole plane carrying just bombs you have to also carry missiles to defend yourself those kinds of costs are very important in in, in the effect you can reduce uh, Chinese effectiveness so so yeah I think the for for at least the first uh, Days, if not weeks, of the conflict, I expect the Chinese to the Taiwanese, excuse me, to stand and fight. If it becomes untenable, if their defenses are broken down over time, their runways are reduced to rubble, um, their ships are largely sunk, then yeah, you can you can expect remnants to potentially flee. But but yeah, uh, the, to answer the question in, a, in in a short way, I expect the Chinese armed forces to stand and fight.
0: We could kind of call it the Poland model, um, in the but hopefully for the Taiwanese it would it would finish differently in that they would fight strongly and, and try and say buy time to wait for allies, which would hopefully arrive. Which is quite a good segue to allies. Um, what does um, so? Who else is interested at this point? Um, obviously, we we're, we're in the second um, scenario, so China is just launching military attacks on on Taiwan. They haven't launched on Okinawa or any US bases anywhere else. Um, but so the US is the obvious one. Um, what what is the uh, what is the choices facing the US at this point?
2: In in this scenario, I, I think the most plausible one, but again it could go either way, is for them to sort of go in lightly at first in the hopes of deterring or, or convincing the Chinese to back down. Uh, through demonstration of force, potentially leading upwards as, as things go. So what do I mean by that, the U.S. reinforces its, its capabilities in the 7th Fleet area or, or the Western Pacific area. Uh, they, could, they could go all the way up to five fleet carriers in the region uh, without them directly going to the Taiwan Strait, but within striking distance. You will, you will see many, many bombers and fighter aircraft flowing into the Western Pacific from all kinds of uh, bases around the world, uh, beefing up that air superiority. Uh, so uh, and, and you're going to talk about many uh, marines and, and army forces arriving, not so much to go into Taiwan necessarily, but to to pose a dilemma for the Taiwanese, the Chinese uh, minds, that they have to consider that land angle as well, and to bring in their capabilities, including uh, strike and air defense capabilities as well, which belong to the army and marines. So th- th- there's a build-up base. And
0: The U.S. has the... I mean, the the kind of international politics advantage here of, of saying, look, China struck the first blow. So we're coming, coming into kind of a purely defensive action. Um, and potentially the U.S. could, uh, by bringing these forces, as you say, it could be a wonderful show of force, but potentially they could also focus those forces on just trying to stop the attacks. So, you know, could they use, I don't know, is it a Patriot missile? Could they use missile to missile type things to... To take down missiles in the air, could they be using? They would they be using fighters to maybe um, face off the Chinese fighters which are heading for Taiwan? Would they, or is that is that an escalation I've just described?
2: That that is an escalation, but that's an excellent segue into the next the next. That's why I'm describing U.S. intervention in phases. Mm. So the the first phase is the build up phase, and you would hope that by showing that the U.S. is bringing forces to the region, demonstrating those capabilities that are arriving, that you would give Beijing second thoughts. Then Assuming Beijing does not back down and continues with its actions, you will go to to the next phases, which include, for instance, defying the Chinese blockade, which is obviously parts of, as we mentioned, parts of China's action, uh, and and staring them down by sending equipment and reinforcements to the Taiwanese. But this is the phase where you are most likely to see Chinese-American skirmishes and Chinese-American conflicts, uh, Chinese shooting missiles at American warships and, and aircraft and vice versa. Uh, And and also keep in mind that the key point here is that many of the Taiwanese airplanes are the same ones that the Americans are flying. So it's also a question of how are the Chinese going to know who they're fighting against.
0: Okay. And um, so I think also another uh, elephant in the room, which is Japan. So you've touched on the fact that the U.S. has... Uh, bases on Okinawa, as well as other uh, air bases in the in the in the region. Okinawa is a is a is a smaller Japanese island, um, also in that that first island chain. Um, so, what is Japan thinking? What is where? So, Jap- America is the first obvious um, responder and ally. But what about Japan? Where where are they with this?
2: So, in this sense, Japan is is going to act in concert with the United States to a large degree. Uh, I doubt they will uh, send fighter aircraft to over Taiwan, like the United States might initially in the initial phases, but they might join in with the convoy, with the international convoy, uh, coalition convoy to send in equipment to the Taiwanese uh, to defy that blockade, which we would label as, as you know, uh, a violation of international law.
0: Why does Japan care? Why does Japan care so much?
2: Well, because Japan is, is terrified of China. Um, but, well, to be more accurate, Japan is terrified over what China could become in the future. China is a, is a rapidly rising power. Its military is, is expanding at an incredible rate and capability. And uh, China and Japan have fought numerous wars. And China, China is a neighbor. Uh, and China acquiring Taiwan, taking it over, will make China even more stronger. So Japan is thinking long term. They, they don't want China to, to break out and to pass the first island chain. They don't want them to be stronger. They don't want to be, them to be even more dominant.
0: So we've got chi- China um, pounding Taiwan with missiles. We've got Taiwan porcupining to try and make it as difficult as possible for China to continue and also trying to hit back as much as possible. Um, and then we've got the U.S. gradually, potentially escalating its presence from shows of force up to uh, interfering and inter- trying to intervene, perhaps air-to-air fights between um, U.S. and Chinese fighters. Um, and Japan is playing probably some kind of role, possibly, probably some kind of role, uh, perhaps by joining in with the naval effort and and, and being part of the of force, perhaps a little bit more reluctant than the U.S. to get its hands dirty, um, maybe a step behind. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and so the next potential escalation, let's say the U.S. is being really effective and China obviously set off with its goals of the forcing taiwan to back down or whatever and that's failed and now the u.s is um kind of regaining superiority over the straits and and you know taking steps what does china then face what 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 um what what decisions does china then face potentially
2: so you could have the chinese decision for instance to strike directly at u.s bases if you knock out the american bases in okinawa uh uh, including the airbase in ports there, as well as in Guam, you really make it much more difficult for the U.S. to sustain that flight because of the geographic reality of, of the environment, of, of the region, where you don't have many airbases or many large airbases outside. Uh, That's in close proximity or within range of the Taiwan Strait, beyond those two, um, and in ports as well, where you, you need warships to go back and and, and refuel and rearm so so just in that sense china can make it more difficult by going after those bases and that might be a decision that they take in the hopes of, of re- regaining that momentum again
0: there is a question mark isn't there about um hitting each other in the you know in the in the land um, by um you know the us hitting bases on on mainland china and china hitting um like us military assets um so that is there's dangers of, of major escalation if any side takes that move. Is that is that right?
2: Yeah, I think you're alluding to the to the to the uh, to the nuclear question, which obviously um, is, is you know the, the maximum rung in that ladder that we mentioned earlier. We've reached a point where China is hitting at U.S. bases, is is going all out against U.S. warships, and there's no holding back, right, on the conventional stage. Then we're talking, obviously, at this stage, you're talking about the United States hitting Chinese bases in China's mainland, going after, um, you know, potentially flying all the way to, to Beijing or close to Beijing or flying deep into China to hit those missile batteries that are very long range, like the df 21 missiles uh, and and, and, and etc. So you're talking about a situation uh, where China feels very much under attack and seeks to retaliate. Now, that does not necessarily mean that they automatically reach for the nuclear button. But like you mentioned, one way they could retaliate is to lob conventional b- ballistic missiles. Um, the, currently, they are nuclear, for nuclear purposes. But if they are being hit and they really want to show that they can strike back, one of the one of the ways they could do that is um, by launching missiles against the United States, uh, or, or or you know attempting to send warships close. of submarine in this case it would be submarines close to U.S. coast to or close enough to be able to strike at U.S. targets in the U.S. mainland. The, the concern, obviously, when you have a situation where both China's mainland is being struck and potentially U.S. mainland being struck, is how do these countries know that the other one is, is continuing to use conventional weapons and, and is not resorting to nuclear weapons?
0: Okay. Um, and whoever uses nuclear first, then that's pretty much, you know, all rules are off. Everyone can use nuclear after that. and then it's, uh, And then, you know, and then the rest is history? Or do you think there could be some coming back from that? Hard to say. Okay,
2: so there is this, there's this path called escalate to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. So let's say, let's assume that China is losing the war, right? They're being battered. They're feeling that they, the back is against the wall. They don't have many options left. What they could do is they could, excuse me, they could use a tactical nuclear weapon um, to destroy an American carrier fleet. No, or, or they could even shoot it uh, at a less important target just to demonstrate the resolve. The idea being that China escalates to the nuclear phase to convince the rest to back down because you're getting to a point where if you don't back down, there's going to be nuclear war. Um, so so that type of demonstration of nuclear intent or capability is the escalation with the hopes of forcing a de-escalation by raising the stakes. That's, that's one way it could go.
0: OK, so we've got that situation ongoing in uh, we've got the U.S. and China escalating into, into uh, potentially global war. But let's let's scroll it back and just see, you know, perhaps going back towards the, the kind of outbreak and conflict and and kind of um, the origins of things a little bit more. Um, how is the rest of the world reacting to this? We've talked about the U.S. We've talked about Japan. Um, Sim, well, let's uh, give me a more global perspective on, on kind of how the world is reacting.
3: So I, I think one of the main things that we want to keep in mind here as we're talking about a scenario between the United States and, and China developing into war um, is the entire world is immediately going to be looking at um, you know, what position do we need to take? How do we need to position ourselves uh, as a part of this conflict or trying to mediate uh, some of the, the effects of this conflict? Um, obviously, within Asia, um, a lot of the actors we've already talked about, um, you know, Japan, uh, the Philippines obviously are going to be trying to define their role somehow. Um, but when we're expanding that further, uh, we've got countries like India, Australia, and, and the broader region uh, around Asia that are going to be trying to um, either take advantage of uh, China's preoccupation in this conflict um, to to either... Um, attain their own objectives that they have been holding for some time uh, or you know try and isolate themselves, trying to make sure they don't get hurt uh, in, in this conflict so to speak. Um, but beyond that, you know beyond the region of course, we're, we're going to be seeing countries in, in Europe, NATO as an alliance trying to figure out what is our role in this world, how do we actually um, present ourselves as a part of a, a US alliance or, do we want to maintain trade with China? So a lot of really deep and important questions for, for everyone, I think.
0: And so what do you think, considering China's role in the world, what do you think the primary thinking would be? Oh, well, China and the US's roles in the world and their and kind of different powers in terms of, you know, economic, military, whatever. Do you think different countries will be all be faced with the same calculus, or, or depending on you know where where you sit in the world, how do, what do you think will shape those choices?
3: Uh, I think that that position of where where those countries are situated is going to dominate the way that they respond. Um, I mean, let, let's take Australia uh, for starters, uh, perhaps, and and uh, Philip uh, will be able to talk a lot more about that. But um, as a country located so closely to Asia as a country that has been very actively involved in that power competition with China, um, it, this development of war around Taiwan becomes a major uh, pivot uh,
0: in, in its future. The naval, the naval thing is interesting because um, we've got this kind of nascent... Uh, this this kind of sleeping potential alliance which which everyone's been watching for for several years now which is the quad which is uh australia japan america and uh, india and um, whether australia is part of the quad or not has been a kind of will they won't they and well it has been part of the quad but india has um only this year for the first time invited australia to be part of the malabar exercises which is kind of naval exercises um but so that you know the fact they've been kind of uh, acting together um, in these kind of naval exercises might make it kind of second nature for them to to join in. Philip, what what do you think? Is the quad is the quad? Does it come come to life? Do all these do all these players um, kick into action at this point? Yeah.
1: So I think with um, India and Australia, and you could probably throw Singapore in, in there as well. Is uh, none of them would, would? I think they all would be extremely leery of intervening directly in something in the operations to actually like defend Taiwan, but there's an, but they also would be very leery of a future in which China wins and which China is uh, pushing ever more aggressively outward. And I I think the obvious place for them to get involved would be if uh, the U.S. uh, combines this direct intervention with, um, with something like a blockade around the choke points that we were talking about at the beginning uh Australia coming up from the south and then India leveraging its Andaman and Nicobar Islands and and so forth to help uh shut down the strait of malacca um that way they can kind of be involved and and really pressuring china uh without putting um you know w- wading too much into the muck and, and india especially doesn't really have the forces to be able to do that to to intervene directly but they could uh play a very substantial role um, moving in from the West to shut down Chinese shipping and help control the, those choke points.
0: Could they find themselves, do you think they could find themselves kind of sucked in deeper um, in terms of as this escalates, if it escalates the way kind of Omar and I were talking about and, and the U S China conflict is growing larger. The fact that India has, has, um, you know, used its Andaman islands to, uh, Obstruct in the in the um, Malacca Straits. Uh, do you think that they could find themselves? You know, it could. Can we see this generally? I mean, for everyone, for Sim, do you, can we see this develop into into kind of forced alliances because it's developing, and so they have to harden as a result.
3: Well, I think the interesting choice that these countries are presented with is if you have the United States engage in a in a naval conflict with China, does this present the opportunity for those countries to? to gather their resources, essentially, and um, degrade Chinese naval power as much as they can. Is, is this their opportunity to reverse the, the surge in Chinese cap- capabilities that we've seen over the past decades? And so
0: what about NATO? Um, so NATO obviously is an alliance in, in, um, in situ. It exists. Um, it's built for originally for dealing with, with the kind of Soviet threat. Um, but uh, and you've got France and Germany, which have got perhaps slightly more ambiguous attitudes towards the strategic confrontation with China. Um, do we think NATO could could kick into action and and take, a, take a role, or or is it going to be is it going to be struggling? Um, Adriano, are you are you there?
4: It will be an extremely awkward situation for uh, America's allies in Europe. I, I think that uh, the EU as an entity will try to stay away from from any uh, military intervention in in, in China. Uh, Of course, with this being the EU, there will definitely be room for uh, diplomatic reactions, strong criticism, potentially sanctions against China, but it will be a very uh, divisive, issue for, for the EU. We have to keep in mind that some countries like um, Germany have very strong trade and investment uh, relations with uh, China, whereas many countries in Central and Eastern Europe are connected to China through investments. I mean, uh, China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, has many projects in Central and Eastern Europe. So countries uh, in the region will will try to avoid any thing that would sever their economic and investment ties with China. So all in all, it will be a very, very awkward situation for the European Union. Um, Maybe we could see a repetition of what happened when the U.S. invaded Iraq in in 2003, where um, some countries in in, in the EU, some NATO member states um, sided with the U.S., while big ones like France and Germany decided to stay out of it. And we have to keep in mind that, of course, there will be an issue of whether or not this represents an Article 5 situation that that should trigger the clause of um, collective defense. And I think that if this is just the U.S. protecting its ally in this case, Taiwan, it would be seen by most Europeans as uh, an American war of sorts, like the Iraq war was, and, and not necessarily as an aggression against NATO that triggers uh, a reply um, from the from the entire alliance. Um, the UK will be in a slightly different situation. I don't know, Mark, what you think of it.
0: I feel like the, the situation might be Changing in terms of kind of um, how the UK feels. Well, I mean, obviously, how the UK sees itself in the world is is kind of by definition in flux at the moment because it's just had a massive personality crisis of some sort. But even with regards to China as well, we saw in kind of 2015, 2016, I want to say, um, the Cameron government made big moves to kind of economically reach out to China and travel and Xi Jinping came and, Came to the Manchester City trading ground and things like that. Things like that. But um, I, since that Theresa May's government um, and uh, Boris's government probably as well have been a little bit more um, uh, China sceptic and, and hardline with China. So I wonder if the push came to the shove. I wonder if Britain might there might it might be possible to sell some kind of. I don't know. It's obviously nothing like the Falklands, but a kind of Falklands-style naval expedition to try and, um, you know, to 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 save plucky little Taiwan, like uh, like Belgium and 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 Poland before them.
4: Yeah, it's interesting um, because from the UK's perspective, um, they have a, a rather ambivalent uh, position when it comes to China. On, on on the one hand, there's this idea of a uh, global Britain. Uh, that sees China as a place of investment, trade, especially after Brexit, because the, the, the UK is trying to rebuild its uh, foreign policy and its trade policy. But at the same time, uh, as you said, Mark, in, in recent years, the UK has been very sceptical and, and, and quite concerned about Chinese penetration in uh, strategic sectors of the British economy. We have seen uh, the relationship with Huawei, for instance, where uh, the British government said that uh, Huawei may participate in some uh, irrelevant part of the of the 5G network, but they don't want the Chinese anywhere near the sensible strategic infrastructure. So I do agree with you that um, the UK has this uh, rather ambiguous or, or ambivalent uh, position when it comes to China.
0: Yeah, um, what about the rest of the world, Sim? Like we've talked about, what people can might be doing, um, and what countries might be doing. What do you think might be happening in the rest of the world? Like U.S. and the U.S. and China are in, a, in an ever increasing state of, of, of um, crisis and, and, and war. And we we started off with a Taiwanese trade embargo from the Chinese, so that's going to have economic consequences, and it looks like it's only going to go downhill from here. From there, um, what do you think? What do you see as as being kind of the knock on effects? As uh, how how are people feeling this?
3: Well, one of the biggest impacts that I think we'd see and kind of similar to what we have actually recently witnessed um, during the the COVID uh, crisis is, uh, you know, we'd see an immense shakeup in the energy landscape um, where a country like China, if its trade routes become um, become disrupted, whether it is through an effective blockade or whether it is through simply Um, you know, a a increased risk to maritime shipping uh, in the area where this conflict is taking place, um, we would probably expect a significant slowdown of the Chinese economy, which is going to hit the rest of the world again. So we would see a reduction in energy demand for China, which is is going to leave uh, some of the important oil producers in the rest of the world uh, without markets to push their products for example um, at, at the same time we'll also see disruptions in in low-end manufacturing and, and even um, you know consumer goods that that we're all consuming out of China um, that would become less available on the one hand and, and on the other hand um, with less materials being pushed into into China if there is that shipping disruption um a, a lesser capacity to produce things, and, and then perhaps a need for the rest of the world to, to seek alternatives.
0: I was seeing a study, I was looking at a study recently about what if there was a GDP, um, uh, a major GDP blip in China, and what would it mean for the rest of the world? And, and so um, shaping that up, and, I, and what I saw was that, uh, as you say, a, there was a huge impact for Commodity players, Russia was a massive impact uh, received a massive impact because of all the oil that it sends specifically to 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 China, um, but also some smaller local players like Singapore and 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 Thai, well, Thailand is another commodity play, um, Argentina as well were 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 majorly hit um, just because that market um, for for the for these commodities would would just disappear overnight. Um, but then also, I mean, the whole region, the 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 Southeast Asian region is is now China is not just a exporter, although um that's what it's kind of grown with and, and grown and everyone is aware of. It's actually a major um consuming economy in the region. So um all the local players who are trying to sell their products into China will find that they lose a market. Um and also they and that's also Obviously, a massive part of the of the overall supply chains as well. So China is remains that that manufacturing center where stuff can't gets stuff from Japan and Vietnam and and um, all these local uh, countries moves to China, gets a, gets assembled potentially moved to America um, and then sold on. You know, so it's there are gigantic supply chain issues of of so anything. I mean as you say all the consumer products but it, I, it's 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 huge numbers of products it's across all sectors um and just finally uh on this from my from my side the 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 financial aspect as well um we would probably in a major war like this it would be it would be a very interesting test in 2000 and, uh in 2008 when when that economic financial crisis hit then um every bo- some people before- beforehand were predicting that um money would gush out of america because of america's big current account deficit but when the push came to the shove um money flowed into america because the u.s remained the safest place in the world and the safe and the and the u.s treasury remained the safest asset and obviously every time something like this happens it's a new test um but my suspicion would be that the same thing would happen again even though it's the US which would be involved in the war um and in and in 2008 the US was the epicenter an epicenter for the crisis so so you know um but so that would mean that the dollar would become very strong um a lot of again these smaller uh smaller countries um particularly the ones perhaps in southeast asia around china um would Find their currencies being very weakened, just when they're struggling to export to their to their market in China. I think it'd be very painful for them. But broadly, we got to say it would be just uh, gigantically catastrophic for a global economy um, because all all countries would be affected to to greater or lesser degrees, and all people would be affected to lesser degrees depending on how long how long this went on.
3: And I think you're hitting on one of the key points there, actually. When when we start to think about duration uh, of this actual conflict, that starts to define a lot of the global and, and economic impacts that a conflict would have. If we're talking about a, a relatively brief war of, of several months, um, obviously these disruptions are something that are much easier to overcome than if we are talking about a, a multiple years of, of uh,
0: high-intensity conflict around Taiwan. For sure, for sure, absolutely. Shall we? Shall we move then to um, how this might be settled? I mean, are there? Can we? Can we talk about that? How it could be settled? Is it? Is it too? There's too many moving parts. Um, but I don't know, Omar. Do you have any thoughts on on apart from obviously all of us eating, um, you know, dust um, in 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 wasteland, dystopian wasteland? <laughs> are there any any ways that this might be settled in 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 you know ways where we all survive? Yes.
2: Yes. Of course. Um, I mean, look. Ultimately, it can either go two ways, right? Uh, aside from what nuclear escalation, which is a possibility, but hopefully a remote possibility. Um, either Taiwan backs down um, and drops its declaration of independence, and removing the uh, the incentive for China to continue its its its, its fight. Um, or the other subset of that is the conflict escalates towards a full Chinese invasion, um, with the U.S. largely sitting it out, and, and the Chin- Chinese taking over Taiwan, which is more of a remote possibility in, in nowadays. But but uh, but the first, essentially, the first overarching ending is a Chinese um, political victory, if a victory for sure, as the losses were going to be immense. Both in terms of the economic costs as well as the military losses, but a victory in the sense that they get their political objectives achieved. The second aspect, uh, the second outcome, is that the Chinese essentially realize that they're not going to achieve their objectives; that the cost is just too hard, too high, and they back down. They don't now. They don't, they, there's a way for them to back down without outright renouncing future conflicts or future uh, military conflicts, in the sense you might have something akin to what happened in the Korean war where you just get, a, you just get, you know, a stalemate where the Chinese know that they have no chance of convincing the Taiwanese to back down right now. They have no chance of taking over the island. The, uh, the Americans have come, the, uh, the allies have come. the Cavalry has arrived. Essentially. Taiwan will stand strong. So in that sense, you, you basically have the Chinese giving up and deciding that they will wait for another time to, to, uh, Attempt, uh, attempt to take over or attempt to get the Taiwanese to back down. I, what I see as a very remote possibility, um, is the Taiwanese, uh, is the Chinese recognizing Taiwanese independence. I see that as very unlikely, but something that could happen if the Chinese are really, really badly hit and and are given a list of demands, for instance.
0: Okay, well, that's promising. That's um, there's some there's some hope in that, um and okay so let's say uh so that let's say that leaves us with two possibilities uh, broadly which is that china succeeds in its goal well three possibilities china succeeds in its goals by uh, taiwan backing down two china ends up occupying taiwan and is set for life set for the future um and uh three china has to uh back down and allow taiwan to be independent that's a potential future as well. What is what is for sure in this new world that we're in now that now that the U.S. and China have gone you know toe to toe over Taiwan? Um, is there anything we can say for sure is, is definitely a new truth?
3: Sorry, if I can tack to that one. Um, I, I don't know if we necessarily have any certainty about a certain uh, a, a truth that emerges from this conflict, but I think we can we can definitely outline two specific aspects. Uh, in which the world might change as a, as a result of this conflict. So um, if, if we look at um, the actual balance of power on a global scale, um, China and the U.S. being uh, perhaps the main military actors in the world right now, um, a conflict like this will will surely um, affect their ability to project military power uh, in the future. And in these different scenarios that we're talking about um I'm assuming that we're seeing some different levels of, of uh, military power that remains on each side, um, but then the second portion, separate from those capabilities, um, is the, the international rule set that countries have, um, you know, governed the international theater under. Um, where a decision by China uh, to attack Taiwan over its uh, its claim of independence, um, I think presents a new reality to the world where um kind of similar to to russian action in crimea as, as adriano mentioned before um russia challenged the the international norms and in this case we see china doing the same so do we start to see a more anarchic world where um where military power once again starts to define um the the course of action more often or uh, do we see some way for the international community to salvage those rule sets after the conflict is over
1: that that was what i was thinking is if the us and japan jumped in that would mean and and fought china to some, to whatever extent like that would be the first great power war in almost a century right and if both you know depending on what capabilities and ability to stomach co- you know the cost of war and so forth um, it would be a, seems like it would be a profound new, introduce a profound new paradigm going forward in, in which, um, this sort of the, this long peace you know, that the great power piece that the world has been in is suddenly no longer the assumption that that will just continue to last, will be gone. And I think countries will, you know, across the world, but would, would be incorporating the risks of a major conf, you know, outbreak of conflict breaking out, um, much more realistically into their calculations
0: and what does that look like what do people have to What does a country what does an independent country have to do to protect itself from that world which they don't have to do right now
3: well i think one of the big things that we could see is is china actually itself changing its its behavior internationally radically Um, china has been very reluctant so far um, to actually commit to military operations um outside of its borders and uh, you know, in a kind of a counterintuitive way, even if it takes a hit in, in capabilities in this conflict, the um, the fact that these peer conflicts are now actually happening in a new world uh, might actually lead to to a situation where we see China become more active and actually trying to make its its military capabilities matter.
2: Yeah, and actually, these points um, segue really nicely into into. A comparison I was going to make a little bit with, with Germany in World War One, in the sense that um, whatever outcome it is, whether China wins or is the tur- is uh, or the coalition arrayed uh, against China wins, if you can call such a conflict a win, given the cost um, y- this will be the first phase. This is not the, this is not peace in our times. This is not the end. Um, you will have if China takes over Taiwan, you will still have that China problem issue. China, rising power, um, facing off against in this case a, a relative weakening of the U.S. position um, in in that great power competition, and so the likelihood of another round two of fighting as China expands further even beyond the first island chain, deeper perhaps to the second island chain in the Pacific, is there. If the uh, Chinese lose, then you have so, something akin to what what happened with Germany after it lost the First World War which is, you know, the desire to, to, to take back or to avenge itself or to restore its, 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 its primacy or, or, and power is still going to be very much there. And one last lesson from World War One is the interconnectedness of Europe and the world was very high. The notion that um, the risks and the implications of a conflict were very drastic and yet that conflict still happened. Um, I think this is one of those spots in the world that is a flashpoint that could lead to to conflict, uh, even with all those ramifications and costs of that conflict.
0: Um, yeah, I think that's a wonderful note to finish, Omar. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for exploring this subject. I think it's been I think it's been fascinating and and um, and hopefully thought provoking. Um, so, thanks all for joining, and we will hope to be doing this again very soon.